Well, good morning. It's so good to see those of you in the room, and for those joining online, thank you for being here as well. It's nice to see the sunshine, isn't it, after a couple of gray, cloudy days, and it's good to be together. So thank you for making us a part of your weekend and for joining us this morning. When I was 10 years old, all I wanted for my birthday was a new bike. I was at that age where all of my friends had like graduated from the, the little kid bike and they had like a, a, an adult bike and had, most of them had gears. And I'm like, I want a new bike for my birthday. I begged, I pleaded, I told anyone who would listen that I wanted a bike for my birthday. And I got to my 10th birthday party and there were no presents that looked like bikes. And I did open up, however, a brand new Nintendo. Yes, I'm old. It was the original with Duck Hunt that came with the gun, came with Super Mario Brothers and all of those things. I opened that present, set it aside, and as soon as the party was over, took it back to the store, got the money, and went and bought a new bike. Right? Have you hoped for things? We all hope for something. Something we wish would be true. Something, you know, I think... When we goof, when we talk funny about what we hope for, we'd all hope for a million dollars, right? Anybody here turn that down if they got it today? If you're a kid, maybe you're hoping that someday soon your parents will give in and give you that cell phone that you're wanting. That's what's happening in our house right now. We're hoping that maybe this will be the year. We're watching the news every day and hoping for peace in the Ukraine. We're hoping that one day we'll stop talking about COVID and booster shots. We're hoping for an end. We're hoping for racial equality and for peace. We're hoping as parents that our kids grow up to love Jesus. We're praying, we're investing. We're hoping and working towards strong marriages where we feel loved and we feel supported and we feel encouraged. Everybody here has some kind of hope. And the pages of Scripture give us an idea that we're hoping for something beyond all this. They constantly remind us that a better day is coming and as followers of Jesus, our ultimate hope is in his return, in the bringing of his kingdom and of true peace. And I think that's the message of the book of Hebrews. We just sang it in that last song. In the night, God's still holding on. In the night, we kind of live in this in-between world that sometimes feels like night because it's tough. We live reading the stories in the Bible. We live knowing and hearing the truth about who Jesus is, about his life, his death, his resurrection. But we aren't the disciples. We didn't walk with him. And so we read these truths and we cling in faith to these truths of the past. But we hope for a better future. We hope for a new tomorrow. We hope for when Jesus comes back, but in the middle of that, we live in this in-between. And I think the truth of Hebrews chapter 11 helps us see how we're supposed to live 
in the in-between. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, pull them out, or your phones, open them up, open the YouVersion Bible app. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 today. And as we look at Hebrews chapter 11, it might be familiar to many of you, it's often called the Hall of Faith. The truth of that passage is that hope allows us to live by faith in the in-between. It's hope that allows us to live by faith in the in-between. Now, because this is the longest passage in the book of Hebrews, we are going to read it start to end, but instead of listening to me read, I've hired professionals. Uh, So Lexi and Corey are going to read this passage to us. You can follow along. Verse 1, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was, already, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings to the future, blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. 
It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who is invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Thank you. By faith, by faith, each of these people lived. They lived in the in-between. They lived in this time when God had come and spoke to their ancestors, the Israelites, all throughout the Old Testament. And by faith, they were trusting in Jesus, just like we are. It's been the theme of the author of Hebrews the whole way through. God worked in the Old Testament and the work of Jesus in the New Testament to be a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better mediator, better rest. And the reality that this world is not all there is. There's still more to come. The author of Hebrews has instructed his audience that this new way of Jesus is greater than the Old Testament. And he spent Ten, almost ten full chapters doing that. And as he comes to the end of chapter 10, he turns a page and the focus is now going to shift to, the, to his audience. What's it mean to live in this new reality? If all these things are true, 
that Jesus really is a new priest. He's given us a new covenant. He's given us a new way to live. Then what's it mean for us? And so as we unpack these last three chapters of the book of Hebrews, we're going to be asking the question, what's it mean to be an MVP, the most valuable person or player on Jesus's team? How do we do that? And so as we learn to see what it's like to be an MVP, we take a look at the end of chapter 10 real quick before we jump into there, where the author quotes Habakkuk. And it's really in this point that the whole book kind of swings. It goes from here's how Jesus is greater to here's how we live in response to the fact that Jesus is greater. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37. It's always good to quote Habakkuk, right? That's just fun. Who talks about that? For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. See, the author is building this tension. This tension of the past work of Jesus and the waiting for his return And will we be? He makes it clear we will be the faithful ones. He brings his point both to them and to us when he turns in chapter 11 and says it's by faith. How will we do these things? How will we live this way? It's by faith. Hebrews 11.1. Don't miss that verse in all of everything else we look at because I think it's a clear start. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. You know, when I think we, when we use the English word faith or believe, I think we have this like mental race that starts happening in our heads, right? We begin, what do I think? What do I think? If I, if I believe in faith, then it's really about what's happening here. But what the author does in Hebrews chapter 11, he doesn't give us a picture of people who think. He gives us a picture of how they live, of how they express and live in this reality. It's kind of like a foretaste. You know, it's perfect for us right now because we're coming out of winter, right? And everybody likes to, does anybody not like to come out of winter? Anybody bold enough to admit it? Nope, not a single hand. Okay, nobody likes, nobody likes or dreads coming out of winter. We're all excited when spring starts coming. The weather starts coming. You remember a couple weeks ago, it was still February, and we had that like 165 degree day. And there's a part of you inside that's like, maybe spring's here. This is going to be great. Spring's here. It's going to be nice. And then we realize, we live in Illinois. It's only February. This is just a small taste. It's a foretaste of what's coming. And we see those all the way along. I can look out my kitchen window now, and there are, there's something green. We don't know what grows in our yard yet. We moved here in the winter, right, or in the late fall. So there's something green that's about this high out of the ground. I'm like, oh, I wonder what that's going to be. But we're beginning to get this taste of what it is to live, of what spring's going to look like. And it's the same way for the people in Hebrews 11. They got a taste of what's to come. And so we see this idea of faith is not just an intellectual, not just a thinking. It's also about a living. If you remember or you were here last week, we talked about the Greek word pistuo, 
which is believe. It means to rely on, to trust in, to adhere to. Relying on and trusting in is about our actions, about the way we live, about the way we go through life. When you look back at each of these people's lives, they had to figure out what it meant to actually do this thing. God came to Noah and he said, hey, Noah, there's this thing called rain. You've never seen it before. Hasn't happened yet, but water's going to fall from the sky. I don't need you to think about how water's going to fall from the sky. I need you to build a boat. I need you to build a boat big enough for your family. I need you to build a boat big enough for two of every animal and seven of the kind we're going to need. I need it to be a big boat. And Noah built the boat. And the flood came. And Noah lived in this in-between in the boat. And you want to talk about a messy in-between? I, I can't imagine what it would like to be like to live on a boat with every animal in the world for 40 days. No thank you. But Noah never saw the end. The boat landed. If you know Noah's story, it's the part we don't teach in kindergarten. Noah gets drunk, has a big party, And Noah doesn't see what's next for God's people. Abraham saw God work, heard God speak to him, left the place he was living, left his family, went to where he was supposed to go. But Abraham never saw kids as numerous as the seashore. Joseph, you know Joseph, right? had his technicolored coat, loved to rub it in his brother's face that he was the special one. This is a good lesson for all you younger siblings. Don't pick on your older siblings too much. They might sell you into slavery. It's exactly what Joseph's brothers did. Joseph's in between. From the time when I'm my father's favorite to the time I die, the in-between is spent in prison as a slave working and building trust in Potiphar's house, but then being thrown back in prison. Joseph's story ends, though, with the Israelites still in Egypt, and Joseph dies. The list goes on and on as we realize each one of these characters knew who God was, had God speak, saw God, went through an in-between time and never actually got to see the future promise. Never actually got to that point. You see, in the past, Jesus has completed his work as our priest. And he's reminded us through the pages of Scripture that we can trust and believe in that on faith. And it won't be until the future that our hope is finally realized. But today, our lived experience is in this in-between. We live awaiting a new future, trusting in the events of the past. May they be the disciples had to live the hardest in-between of anybody. Can you imagine? Throw away your nets. Parents' business. Left it. To follow Jesus. And on Friday night, Jesus is arrested. He's crucified. He's found guilty. 
we don't talk about Saturday very much. We just skip right to Sunday, right? Jesus walks out of the tomb. It's Easter. Let's celebrate. That's coming in a couple weeks. Come back and we'll get that more in a minute. The disciples had to live in Saturday. What do we do? Where do we go? Do we go back to fishing? This didn't turn out the way we thought it was going to turn out. What are we supposed to do now? They lived in this in-between. Not knowing. And then Jesus comes back. Then Jesus shows up. He's the God who shows up in the future. He showed up for, jo- for Joseph. He took him out of prison. He showed up for each one of these people. Now what we have to understand is our in-between is a little different. Right? The disciples didn't know. Is Jesus coming out of the tomb or is he not coming out of the tomb? Wait, did, was this whole thing a lie? But the minute Jesus steps out of that tomb, our future is guaranteed. There's no doubt. It's assured. It's paid for. Jesus did it once and we can trust he's coming back again. But how do I live in the middle of that in-between? How do we live in the middle of that tension? I think we live four ways. We live first with our minds engaged. This faith that we believe in is not a blind, illogical faith. It is a faith that engages our mind. It is a faith that begins here and leads to action. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah considered. Sarah thought and sat and thought about it. She thought about, is God faithful? And she believed he was. Sarah's husband Abraham in Hebrews eleven nineteen, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from life. Abraham didn't just haphazardly be like, oh, this is the child of the promise, the child that God told me I would have and that he would make my descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I'll just, whatever God, I'll just do it, blind faith. Abraham stopped and he reasoned. He thought, how could God promise me this and then not do it? And he realized that God could do more than he thought he could do. Our faith isn't a blind faith but a faith with reason and purpose and a faith that allows us to think and actively use our minds. It's one of the things, the older I get, the more I appreciate this fact about our faith. Maybe you know who Francis Collins is. If you don't, he's the head of the Human Genome Project. He's the one who worked with a team to map human DNA for the first time. One of the most intelligent scientists ever to live. And he says this about faith and thought, or faith and reason. He says, we turn our backs on science because it's perceived as a threat to God. Abandoning all the promises of advancing our understanding of nature and applying that to alleviate the suffering and betterment of humankind. Alternately, we will turn our backs on faith, concluding that science has rendered the spiritual life no longer necessary. 
And that traditional religious symbols can now be replaced by engravings of the double helix on our altars. Both of these choices are profoundly dangerous, Colin says. Both deny truth. Both will diminish the nobility of humankind. Both will be devastating to our future. And both are unnecessary. The God of the Bible is also the God of the human genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral and in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. And it cannot be at war within itself. It's important for us to realize this is not just like a, I'm just going to go off and do whatever I need to do. No, we can think about our faith. We can see reasons. The thing I tell students all the time, I guess I used to tell students, I'm still not used to this whole like lead pastor thing, right? You guys could just be high school kids. It'd be easier, right? Like I used to tell students all the time, I can give you understanding. I can give you some evidence that will take you so far. But at some point you have to take a step of faith. But that's not a step of faith that's as big as the Grand Canyon. It's a step of faith that we can find some logical reasoning to. And so as we live in this in-between, we live with our mind fully engaged. Second thing we do is we live trusting that God can bring life out of nothing. Don't let that just go over your head. God can bring life out of nothing. Right? Listen to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand the entire universe was formed at God's command. And what we see did not come from anything that can be seen. Everything we see. The trees, the rocks, the Grand Canyon, all of it. God spoke and it was formed. That's power. There was nothing there. I would, my family often talks about, if we were to go back in history, where would you want to go? I go real close between creation and the feeding of the 5,000. Those are the two things I want to see in history. But I would love to know how God did it. His words came out and what we see was formed. That's amazing. God spoke and life happened. And life was born. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are about who created God. And he spoke. But he doesn't stop at creation. Take a look at Abraham's life. Hebrews eleven twelve, And so a whole nation came from this one man who was good as dead. So a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, there's no way to count them all. Out of nothing. Out of places that make no logical sense, God brought life. Nobody looks, please don't be offended at this, nobody looks at your 95-year-old grandma and goes, but she's going to be the mother of a great nation. Never had a kid, but I bet at 95, she'll be the mother of a great nation. And that's what God did. Because God speaks and life happens. It's the same thing at the tomb. We don't go to cemeteries to look for the living. We don't go to cemeteries to find life. 
And yet on the third day, in a cemetery, life happened. And Jesus walked out of the tomb. Do we believe that in our broken relationships, that in our places of deepest pain, in the place where we think, you know what, there's no way anything new is going to come out of that, that God can speak and life will bloom. As you think about where you live and how you live each day, only God, only the one we believe in in faith can speak life out of nothing. And so when you look at that place and you say, there's no way anything can come out of that, it's impossible. We believe in faith that maybe God is the only one who makes it possible. And life begins to be born. Relationships begin to be healed. And our lives are transformed. We live in the the in-between, knowing it's not about what we want. Right, The pages of Hebrews 11 tell us there are really three different answers to what God is going to give us. Sometimes when we pray, sometimes when we ask, we hear yes. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea. They walked around the city of Jericho and the walls fell. The widows received their dead back from the dead. They, they received those who died back to life. Their immediate answers. When you're walking to the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is coming behind you, you need an answer quickly. And God shows up and answers. But that's not always the way God answers. That's the way we want him to answer, right? That's what we want. We want to come to prayer and God to give us what we ask for in prayer every time. At least that's what we think we want. But sometimes in the in-between, in this messy period of life, God speaks. We ask God for something and God's answer is wait. Abraham and Sarah waited for a long, long time before they ever had Isaac. Think about poor Noah. I go back to Noah all the time. He built a boat. It had never rained. How do you think his neighbors felt? Dude, that boat is huge. It's an eyesore in the neighborhood. The homeowners association is not happy. That does not meet code. And he's like, no, I promise you, it's going to rain. It's going to what? Yeah, water's going to fall from the sky. God told me so. And all of a sudden, one day it started raining. It wasn't immediate. It took some time. He needed time to build the boat. He needed time to gather the animals. God said, wait. Think about the prophet Samuel and King David. David is anointed king. And for almost all of the book of 1 Samuel, after being anointed early in the book of 1 Samuel, David runs for his life as the current king Saul tries to kill him. Like his best friend's dad is out to kill him. There's no immediate like, okay, David, you're anointed king. You're to be king. Saul's going to die. That's not the way it happened. In this messy in-between, we have to learn to wait. 
We don't always get what we ask for. And sometimes the book of Hebrews chapter 11 teaches us that sometimes God says no. Abel still died. The author says thousands have suffered and died in awful, torturous ways because of their faith. Moses never entered the promised land. As we live in this in-between, we have to learn it's not about getting what we want. Eugene Peterson says it this way, it is willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. Is that how we live by faith? Willing to let God do it his way as he sees fit, not as we see fit. And finally, we live in the in-between as travelers passing through. We see in here it says they were sojourners or travelers. They didn't think this place was their home. If they did, they would have went back to the land they were at before, but they kept moving through. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope in the in-between that the assurances of our faith will happen. We're not wishing like a kid throwing money in the fountain at the mall and hoping his wish comes true or blowing out the candles on our birthday cake and hoping we get what we want. We're not me at 10 wishing for a bike. As followers of Christ, we're not wishing for a brighter future. We're clinging to the assurance, to the guarantee that our hope will happen because it happened with Jesus and we have all kinds of testimony to that. 1 Corinthians 15, 4-8 says, Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture said. He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by, some, by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Paul speaking. We're not holding on to the fact that Jesus walked out of the tomb because a couple people said so. Hundreds saw him. Hundreds testified. And it was written down while they were still alive. Because God is faithful to his promises, the in-between will end. This messy life will come to an end and we can be assured that our hope is true and it's real. Tim Keller says, all death can do now to Christians is make life infinitely better. We believe that. That's our hope. Whether we die in this life or Jesus comes back, our hope is that it's infinitely better from here on out. If we're living by faith in the in-between as travelers passing through, then that should change the way we live. If we know that at the end, we will be forgiven for everything we've done. No sin we've committed, no mistake we've made will be held against us, will be set free and forgiven. 
then shouldn't that make us more willing to forgive those who wrong us today? If we know at the end there's nothing better for us, doesn't that make it just a little bit easier through the power of the Holy Spirit to be self-disciplined today? It should change the way we view relationships. It should change the way we view intimacy. It should change the way we view work. It should change the way we love our neighbor. If we're living by faith in the in-between, it should look different because we're not clinging to this place as our home. We know there's more beyond. It's hope that allows us to live by faith in the in-between. So as followers of Jesus, we live by faith, believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died and three days later walked out of the grave, and we cling to our hope that he will return and that when he does, all will be made new. But in the meantime, we live in the messy in-between with our minds engaged, trusting he can bring life out of nothing, knowing that we won't always get the answers we want and as travelers passing through. This week, I want to encourage you. If you're here today or you're watching online and you've never accepted that Jesus is who he says he is, that he actually died on the cross, walked out of the grave. That truth is available for you today. And so if you're there, don't leave here without talking to somebody about it. We would love to help you and interact with you and help you understand who Jesus is. But church, if you've professed your faith, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, then it's our responsibility to embrace embrace the messiness of the in-between and trust God to work like only he can in our lives, in our relationships. And maybe the question we need to ask ourselves today, does my life actually look like I'm just passing through? Does my life actually look like I'm just passing through? Or am I living every day Like this is the end. This is all there is. That'll look dramatically different. The way we treat others will be dramatically different. My prayer for you and for me, every one of us, is that we would learn to be better followers of Jesus as we learn to embrace and live by faith in the in-between. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your grace, for the work of Jesus on the cross. And God, we ask that you would help us to live in this messy life. God, that we would do it by faith, honoring you, with our minds engaged, willing to have conversations, willing to discuss different things. God, I pray that when others see our lives, they see something different about us because we're living by faith and that that is so attractive that it draws them to you. 
God, when we mess up along the way and we fall short, we're thankful for your grace and your forgiveness. And we ask and pray that you would be at work in those places. And we thank you for your mercy and your love that never ends. We pray all this in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.